the Christian Circle podcast and you're listening to Pamela Fernandez where we have conversations about Christian living. Here's the show. Uh he was born Francisco or Franciscus. Yeah, yeah. And uh a lot of our uh a lot of the saints we've looked at like Saint uh, Augustine and Saint Paul mm-hmm. had like these major conversions in life, you know, and some of them like Saint Faustina and Catherine of Siena were kind of like born on the path of sanctity. And that's what uh, Padre Pio was. He was kind of born to be a saint, but I mean, we all are, aren't we? <laughs> so that's kind of, he was born like just he grew up. He never really had that that period in his life, like you know Augustine or Paul. Like I said, he was just set on this path to holiness from a young age. And supposedly, as a child too, he could see you know visions of his guardian angels and Jesus and Mary. And he assumed that everyone else could too. Mm-hmm. You know, that was just kind of a normal part of life for him. So he was in touch with supernatural and with sanctity from you know the earliest days of his life yeah. a very interesting person and uh, i think in his case uh, his family was very devout as well right um, yes and yes very devout family yeah yeah he he, uh, he said from i think he was about five years old when he first said that he wanted to pursue a religious life you know his family was very on board with it and they, they encouraged it yeah. and uh you know very much like saint Teresa of the Sioux's family how they were very encouraging of their daughters and you know going after religious life yeah. he was he was encouraged by his family and uh he pursued it, and actually, his uh, father, because they were very poor, from a very poor part of Italy, mm-hmm. and his father, kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but he tried to join the local uh, Franciscans, and they said that he needed more of an education because mm-hmm. he hadn't started school until later on in life because he had a lot of health problems, mm-hmm. and he didn't have enough of an education. They couldn't really afford mm-hmm. more education for him, so his father actually left and went to America mm-hmm. and would send back money mm-hmm. so that his son could get a tutor for several years until he was educated enough to become a friar. And, and that's, so that's a lot of family support. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good example because um, this, when you choose a vocation, it's, it's sacrificed not just for the person who's making it, but for the family as well, right? Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people, you know, we pray for priests mm-hmm. all around the world, but then a lot of people, it's kind of a, a not-in-my-backyard type yeah. mentality a lot of people have nowadays, right, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, we need more priests, but, not my you know, son. from someone else's family, yeah. <laughs> right? Not my son, I want grandkids. <laughs> but it's really not the right attitude to have, I guess. This is this is the example of the attitude that everyone should have, but it's a sacrifice, not just for the for the person making the sacrifice, but also for his whole family, like you said, and for women too, you know, for people who have come nuns. Yeah, yeah. It's a sacrifice for them too. What is his uh, childhood like? Because he leaves at 15 and he becomes, um, he decides he's, he's already on this road to priesthood. Yet mm-hmm. he's on this, uh, he's got all these different gifts. Like today we know that he's a mystic, he's got bilocation, he's got stigmata, mm-hmm. he's got all these different things. And he's had all these visions since he was a kid. So he's he's actually been, been quite involved very early. Yeah. You know, from a very early age, he uh, he joined the, uh, the Franciscans when he was 15, mm-hmm. and then he was uh, ordained in 1910, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he was allowed to stay at home, though, because usually a Franciscan would live in the monastery with the other Franciscan brothers who live in the community. You know, it was a religious community. Mm-hmm. But since because of his health problems, he was allowed to stay at home, and he lived with his family for a while. Mm-hmm. And then he was ordered to actually move into the monastery. Mm-hmm. And one day, hearing confession, so it wasn't... He had the gifts of seeing, he would converse with his, his guardian angel, like have conversations like we're having now. <laughs> seems pretty extraordinary to us, but I guess for him, it just seemed like it was just, just as natural as breathing. And it wasn't until a little bit later on, he'd been a priest for a few years, that he was hearing confession one day. He had a searing pain mm-hmm. in his hands and feet, and it was then that he got the stigmata, and he carried the stigmata the rest of his life, mm-hmm. all the way till his death in 1968. So for people who don't know, can you explain what the stigmata is? Right, the stigmata, there's... There's two kinds of stigmata. There's the, uh, the visible and invisible stigmata. There's some people that have experienced the pain of the wounds of Christ. So typically it's the you know, two holes in the hands or wrists and two holes in the feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes includes like a, uh, 
kind of a crown of thorns type wound, you know, like on the forehead and stuff. And uh, Padre Pio actually also suffered a wound in his side mm-hmm. right towards the end of World War One, mm-hmm. And it was, uh, he said it was the piercing of his heart, the same way that Jesus' heart was pierced. Mm-hmm. So it's basically the wound of Christ that the person with the stigma, I always seen the stigmata as kind of like a, a cross to bear, yeah. you know, a burden placed upon you. But the people who's had the stigmata, you know, people like St. Francis of Assisi mm-hmm. and uh, Catherine of Siena mm-hmm. and Padre Pio, they seen it as a blessing to be able to suffer along with Christ. And I mean, St. Paul said the same thing. St. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was, but he talks about it. Yeah. And we asked God to remove this thorn from his flesh, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, he said that his suffering was building up what was lacking in the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. He rejoiced in his suffering. So that's what people with the stigmata, they rejoice in the fact that they have the same suffering as Christ, and they're getting to share and participate in his suffering. And for those who don't believe, um, the, stig- the stigmata that he did have was investigated, right? It was investigated oh, yeah. By- yeah, it was thorough. Yeah. Thoroughly investigated. It was actually uh, towards the end of uh, Pope Benedict XV's pontificate, the 1921-22, uh, there was kind of like a whisper campaign against Padre Pio, and they took away his ability to celebrate Mass in public, mm-hmm. took away his ability to hear confessions, basically made him kind of like a hermit, yeah. wasn't allowed to do anything publicly, and they were going to move him to another monastery, but the local people threatened to, mm-hmm. to riot. And so they backed off on those plans. But then about, it went, it was a good time too, maybe 10 years until Pope Pius XI reinstated all his priestly faculties and uh, said that he'd been kind of misled about what was going on with Padre Pio. So obviously there's some people, I don't know whether it was diabolical in nature or what the deal was, but there were some people that didn't like what he was doing. They thought, I don't know if they thought he was just a charlatan or if it was something like I said, diabolical, if it was the devil involved. But uh, they, they were trying to keep him down and... He suffered through it, and he went through all that kind of character assassination mm-hmm. until he was vindicated. And then in the 60s, Pope Paul VI, he came out and said that they completely, everything that was said about him was rubbish, and it was all, you know, they investigated the claims that, like, he was using carbolic acid to keep the wounds open, and then it was all nonsense. It was actual, he had the wounds of Christ. Mm-hmm. It was real. He wasn't faking it. Mm-hmm. He wasn't some sort of, you know, scam artist. Mm-hmm. He was a saint. Well, they didn't actually canonize him at that moment. That came later. But he said that this was a real, this actually happened, and the church looked into it, investigated, and found no other cause for it except for, you know, something supernatural in nature. And um, it's a good example also about being subject to authority, because there's no complaint from him during that time period. He goes through all this without complaint. Yeah, that's what I mean. Of all the, I actually, that's why I kind of marveled that too, of all the things that... Padre Pio had going for him like the bilocation, like you said. Supposedly he levitated sometimes during mass. Yeah. He had the ability to read hearts. He could he knew yeah. your confession when you come into the into the box with him before you even open your mouth. Yeah. He could bilocate all these different things. Mm-hmm. But the one that we're all able to do, because those are all gifts, those are all graces, those are all gifts of God. You know, so you can't just decide to bilocate tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but you can practice obedience and you can practice patience. Yeah. And you know, you can you can say with humility that I it reminds me of two angels, Michael and Lucifer. What's the difference between the two angels? One's archangel, one's Satan. Mm -hmm. Is Lucifer said, you know, I will not serve. And Michael serves as God's archangel. So that's the thing that separated them. They're both angelic beings. They're both with perfect intellect. You know, they're both these great, highly created creatures, Mm -hmm. but one chose not to humble himself before God and be obedient. And one chose to be obedient and humble himself before God. Mm -hmm. And that's what Padre Pio done. So for 11 years, or 10 or 11 years, he was subject to this character assassination mm-hmm. and he could have went out and said, you know what guys, I'm going to start my own church. Yeah. I've got, I've got a following here in central Italy yeah. and I'm going to go out and I'm going to start, you know, the church of Pio, yeah. but he didn't. <laughs> he said, okay, 
you know, because St. Paul said, there in the letter, uh, I think it was in Hebrew, so I don't know, St. Paul, he said to be subject yourself to the you know, church authorities above you. Right, yeah. And that's what Padre Pio done. He subjected himself to the authorities, even though it was, it was unjust, but they were doing dumb. And he really had all these supernatural gifts, but he was obedient and he was humble and he took his licks and he came out on top, you know. It reminds me too of Job, you know, from the Old Testament, a couple different people, Job and uh, even St. Paul. When St. Paul first came down to Jerusalem, he left. He came down to Jerusalem, nobody really trusted him, and he left and went back to Tarsus. He sat in Tarsus for maybe four or five years before he was called upon to come to Antioch and be a teacher, you know. So this is the greatest evangelist the world has ever known sat on his hands for four years because he was waiting for the church to call him because it wasn't his place to call himself. He was sent. He was an apostle, but an apostle is one who was sent. You know, so he practiced obedience and he was humble. And when he was called and he got sent out, he done great things. And that's what Padre Pio done. Yeah. So once he comes back, um, does the war happen after that? Or the, the war happens before that and he's then uh, serving in the war as well? Oh yeah, that was, yeah, World War One happened. Uh, so that was, he got, uh, he got called up for military service. It was like, Towards the end of the war, like 1916 or 1917. So it was after that, after he came home from that, is when uh, you know the character assassination against him happened. Because it was like 1922, towards the end of uh, Benedict XV's pontificate, 1922, 1921, mm-hmm. something like that. So it was after the war. So he bears his responsibility towards his country, towards his uh-huh. church, towards his family. He does all of these things. Yeah. Despite being a priest. Despite being a priest, and despite being sick pretty much his entire life. Yeah. You know, he he was just illness after illness, and. Uh, he suffered through it all with grace and dignity, just like, like I said, like Job from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You know, Job was afflicted with one thing after the other, and the whole time he kept faith in God. Now, after he's come back from um, <laughs> his time, <laughs> time in the desert, yeah. <laughs> he's come back, and now his ministry takes off remarkably. I mean, there are people all over coming to him. I know um, of people who've been who because he was a very recent saint when he died. He, it was in oh, yeah. so I know people in Kuwait who were writing letters to him, and he would write back and yeah. his ministry. Yeah. This ministry took off like in a very, very big way after he came. Mm. Yeah, after he uh, was kind of vindicated and he came back. So that was 1934. So, uh, you know, those 30 years. And he actually parlayed his uh, his popularity and everything into, he built this, this big hospital mm-hmm. in Italy. And uh, so he used kind of his fame, I guess you would call it, for lack of a better word. He used his fame and celebrity for a good cause. Yeah. You know, sometimes you see people like religious uh, leaders and stuff and they become famous and then they use that to become popular basically you know like they they go on like talk shows and television shows and they they want to ingratiate themselves with the culture rather than being speaking truth to the culture you know kind of like what bishop Barron does where bishop Barron calls people out on it and not in a confrontational way but just says you know this is the gospel some people end up going the other way and saying and kind of compromising on values and you know what i mean they kind of become more of the world rather than standing out and a witness to the world like bishop Barron or even like billy graham yeah. But he used his celebrity in a good way. So he went out and he got donations and he gathered up and built this hospital. And so that's kind of good use of celebrity and, and uh, popularity, basically. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, yeah, he built the hospital in central Italy. And uh, he done a lot of, I mean, people come from all around. They said sometimes, because he hear confessions, lots of confessions. Yeah. It's like one of his favorite things to do. And they said sometimes people would wait five, six hours in line to hear a confession, for, to you know, confess to him. I mean, it'd be a pretty amazing thing, I guess. There's just certain people out there that you see, like... Uh, you know, like Mother Teresa or John Paul II mm-hmm. that we've seen in our lifetime. I wasn't around in 68. But I seen, I remember Mother Teresa when she was alive and I remember John Paul II. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, these people, this this is a saint. Yeah. You know, back before I even believed in the whole communion of saints, I knew that if there is such thing as saints, yeah. these are them. You know, and I guess people could see that off Padre Pio too and wanted to be a part of it. Wanted to, you know, the history of 
I confess to Padre Pio. It's a pretty amazing thing yeah. if you think about it. And the thing is, uh, because I, I've, I've seen these people who now, whose kids were in, in my class, and and they keep saying, you know, that their parents had this, started this devotion to Padre Pio before he was even canonized, before he, right. because they, if they'd go to him for confession or write to him in letters, he already knew their problems before, like he had yeah. a And I believe even for Pope John Paul II, he already prophesied in, uh, that he was going to be somewhere really high up. Yeah, there. yeah, I heard that. He told them. He told him that he'd be the highest level of the church. He assumed him in a cardinal, but uh, you know, as we know, he became pope. So, what are some of his most famous writings? Because there's so much. In fact, I think every year there's a new book or there's something new about. Oh yeah. Him. Well, I mean, he was a prolific preacher too. So he would he preach on all these different topics and everything, and people would kind of take and he would take these nuggets or like transcripts of his sermons, and you could make a book out of just what he preached on, just at Sunday mass, you know. But uh, one of the things he kind of gave like a yeah. Uh, Five steps to holiness. You know, I really think that it really kind of resonated with a lot of people. And uh, I really, I like, I try, try my best. But number two is very difficult for me okay. because you know work schedule and stuff. But the, the five, his five steps to you know increasing and growing in holiness because he became famous as a spiritual advisor too. That's why his confession lines were so long. Okay. So people would go down and confess. He already knew all their sins. Mm-hmm. They'd confess them, and then he would give them kind of spiritual advice. And this was his famous, you know, pray, hope, and don't worry. His famous little yeah. quote. That, that's probably the most famous quote from Padre Pio. But these five steps, I'd really like to integrate them more into my own life. And step one is weekly confession. He said, uh, confession is a soul's bath. You must go at least once a week. I do not want souls to stay away from confession more than a week. Even a clean and unoccupied room gathers dust. Return after a week and you'll see it that it needs dusting again. And that's true. I used to, I mean, I try to go to confession once every couple of weeks. Sometimes it's hard. But uh, even if you don't have a mortal sin to confess, it's, you know, we all fall short every day. And... You know, if you do an examination of conscience, mm-hmm. you'll see places where you've fallen short, places where you can you can grow more in holiness and stuff. And that, it's the truth. I mean, even a room that's unoccupied still gathers dust. Yeah. Number two is daily communion. And that one's a little more difficult for me or for a lot of people that's working because it's hard to get to Mass, yeah. especially more Mass if it's during work hours and stuff. But I uh, I was recently on vacation on a cruise and they had a priest on board. I went to Mass almost every day for a two-week cruise. It was great. It was like a miniature retreat, a vacation and retreat all wrapped into one. So... I do, I do appreciate daily mass. I wish I could make it more often. But number three is an examination of conscience every day, a daily examination. Yeah. And he recommended a morning examination of conscience yeah. and an evening one yeah. to kind of see where things went. Yeah. And if you're doing an examination of conscience every day, even if it's just a quick five minutes before you go to bed, you really do see the areas where you need to you need to sharpen your focus. You need to grow a little bit more. You know, it helps you too when you go to confession. You, you have them things you've examined over the last seven days to try to grow on. And the number four is daily spiritual reading. And that, that can be the Bible, it can be the Catechism, it can be a papal encyclical. Mm-hmm. I really like doing uh, Lectio Divina, mm-hmm. you know, where you meditate on like a single verse, just yeah. pick one verse. And you know, it's different. There's different methods for doing it. Yeah. The the one that I really like is you pick a single verse and you read it. You read it one time through, mm-hmm. and just kind of get the the literal sense of what Jesus or whatever. Usually, a verse from the Gospel, what Jesus is saying. So like the literal, he's talking to, like say he's talking to Mary, Lazarus's sister or Martha, mm-hmm. and you read, like, your brother will rise, do you believe this? Mm-hmm. And then you read it again and imagine yourself in the room, yeah. and, like, you're a spectator to this. Mm-hmm. And then you read it a third time, and you imagine that you're the one that Jesus is speaking it to. Mm-hmm. Like, you're standing there, you're the subject of the conversation. And then you read it a fourth time, and then you kind of respond, like, what would your response be? And I think that's a really a great way to really meditate on a single, you can just pick one line of scripture and spend a half hour with it. And then number five is prayer at least twice a day. Mm-hmm. And so if you do these five steps of Padre Pio, it's really 
boundless spiritual growth. And you can try for a week and... and, and oh, yeah. yeah. Try add one a week. Yeah, add one a week. Yeah. And as far as confessions go, I know because psychiatrists usually recommend, especially in, um, I know around here, if you go to a psychiatrist and he asks you, uh, well, are you Catholic? The first thing he'll tell you is go to a confession and come back. Because huh. they believe in the power of the <laughs> Right, just the catharsis. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never been to a psychiatrist before. But uh, first time I went to confession two years ago when I first, when I first became Catholic, I come out of that, that confessional booth, and I mean, I felt like I was 20 pounds lighter. Yeah, yeah. It really was amazing. Like, I can see why people pay the big bucks to lay on a couch, and we get it for free. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> plus, a psychologist or psychiatrist can't give you absolution, so we got yeah. that going, too. It's free with spiritual benefits, not just mental benefits. Yeah, and you can always ask your uh, ask your priest to give you advice to do a, a, a conversational confession. Mm -hmm. You can you can do it anyhow you like. I mean, they they just want to hear confession. And just to remind people, the priest has just two jobs: one is to serve the Eucharist, and the other is to hear confessions. So anything yeah. else that happens in the church is your responsibility. But those two things are his job, and they will do it anytime, anytime. Oh yeah, I know priests that'll just hear and like if you walk up to them and say, "Hey, Father, I got a quick confession." Oh, sure. No, they, they're glad to hear confessions. And then there's people, too, that are, like, scared of, uh, you know, they're scared of what they're going to say to the priest, and they're all the priests, and I think they say that of me. They've heard it all, and yeah. you hear that all the time. Like, oh, they've heard, they literally have heard it all. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, they've heard everything. So you're not going to shock them. Yeah. And there was one priest I heard, he said, uh, when he was in school, he was, like, uh, a chaplain of school, and he offered 20 bucks to any kid that could shock him in the confessional. And he said, you know, he taught in school for whatever it was, 10 or 15 years. And he said, I never did have to give anyone $20 because <laughs> <laughs> nothing was ever shocking. But and it isn't just that. It isn't supposed to be a competition of who can sin the most. But they're not going to be shocked. And also, if you walk in that confessional and say, you know, bless me, Father, I've sinned. It's been 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever. It's been 40 years since my last confession. They're going to cry with joy that you're coming back to the sacraments. They're not going to scold you and say, why have you been only for so long? They're going to encourage you to, you know, don't let it go another 40 years. Come, you know, come back next week or come back next month or you know, come to Mass on Sunday. But they rejoice at the return. You know, he Jesus said heaven rejoices at you know one sinner that repents. Yeah. So that's what and the priest rejoices too. Yeah. So they're not going to scold you. They're not going to you know grab you by the ear and twist your ear. They're not going to be shocked by anything you have to say. They're going to be happy you're there and they're going to say welcome home. So after these five steps, when people start incorporating them. Are they expected to bilocate and become mistakes? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. That's all, like I said, that's all graces and gifts. But the things that you can do besides these five steps is you can practice humility and obedience. That's that's within all of our powers to do. The the other stuff, the supernatural gifts, that's up to God to grant to each one of us. I don't want to levitate. That would freak my, that would freak my kids out, I think. But <laughs> maybe the reading hearts would come in handy, knowing the kids are lying to you. But, <laughs> but the levitating, I think I'll leave that with Padre Pio. What else uh, about his uh, writing has uh, has changed? Like, I know he focuses a lot on prayer as well. And that, I think we've, with every saint, we've managed to say this, that prayer becomes, it becomes part of your routine. You have to do this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but, but we, when I was in RCIA, uh, the priest who happened to be there at the parish at the time, he wasn't even, he was like a temporary pastor because our, our pastor of our parish had to resign because of health problems, so we got this temporary pastor. And he was great. He was a retired priest. He lived out in Sun City with a retirement area here in Arizona. And uh, he asked me, he asked the class in general, but I felt like he was asking me, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, do you pray? You know, it's kind of a silly thing to ask a group of people who's mostly Christians that are all converting to Catholicism from different denominations and stuff, and that have been in this. I stopped and asked myself, no, I don't really, no, I don't pray. I would go to church on Sundays, and I would join in the prayers there, and then I would pray if there was a cop behind me and I was speeding on the freeway, or, you know, or if I thought I was taking a heart attack, 
Yeah. You know, I was stressed. I would pray then. Or if my kid was sick and like, I didn't know what was wrong, I'd pray then. But really, like, did I pray regularly? No, I didn't. And he said, a Christian who doesn't pray isn't really a Christian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at first, like I said, it shocked me. Like, yeah, of course we all pray. We've been in RCIA for four months. Yeah, we pray every... But really, we did... Like, I, don't, I couldn't speak for anyone else, but no, I didn't. I didn't pray. I was a Christian who didn't pray, which is an oxymoron. Yeah. So I started praying more often. And it kind of shocked me when I looked back on it. Like I said, I only prayed when I needed God, when it was the genie in the lamp that I could rub, you know, because I, I needed a wish granted or I needed something, some sort of petition granted of some kind, or I needed not to, you know, not to go to jail because I was doing 30 over the speed limit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there was different reasons why I rubbed that lamp that God was contained in. But other than that, I didn't want to let God out. I didn't want him to be part of my life, really. Yeah. And so that was kind of like a, one of the light bulb moments. You know? yeah. And so, yeah, prayer, that's what makes a Christian into a saint is prayer. That really is the marker of every saint. All the saints are very similar, and they're very different at the same time. Mm-hmm. But this, the, the single thread that runs through every single one of them is they all had a strong prayer life. Yeah. And since we're all called to be saints, we should all have a strong prayer life, too. It follows, one follows from the other. So all saints have a strong prayer life. We should have a strong prayer life to become saints. Yeah.